This is Maya Thomas, the producer of the DSC podcast. DSC is a team of 33 people across Australia, all working together to bring specialised training and consulting expertise to providers in the disability sector. All right, here's what's going to happen now. Hello and welcome to our podcast. We are DSC. Your turn, you're the boss. Disability Disability done done different, different. candid conversations. Hope you're ready because we're starting. Welcome to Disability Done Different Candid Conversations. Welcome, Evie. Welcome, Roland. And welcome, Maya. And welcome, Doogie. (laughs) (laughs) Doogie Heard, our guest today, is one of our key speakers at GIST 2020, our June 10 and 11 conference. So we're really excited to have Doogie on board. We made up a hit list last year of the people we'd really like to have at a conference, the people that are both informing and entertaining. And Doogie was very high on the list, and Doogie said yes. So... You'll be getting a taste of the sorts of things Doogie um, is capable of saying or talking about for just 2020 today. Doogie Hurt has over 30 years experience in the disability sector and some of you may wonder with that thick Scottish accent, but it's mostly been in Australia. Uh, Fascinating career because a lot of it's been in advocacy for people with a disability and a lot of it has also been in government policy development. He was there at the beginning of the um, design of the National Disability Insurance Scheme in 2012-2013, playing a a pivotal role, and he's been around it ever since. And one of the things we'll talk to you about, Doogie, is just recently getting your NDIS plan. Doogie, why don't you tell us what you're currently doing now as introduce yourself? Yeah, sure. Um, Thanks for the invitation. I'm very happy to be here. Um, I'm uh, currently, um, have been the last 18 months, Chief Executive Officer of an organization based in Canberra um, called Community Connections. It's been around for about 22 years and um, uh, has provided disability supports uh, before the NDIS to uh, people with disability and their families. Um, And like lots of other organizations has been transitioning to the NDIS since the trial scheme was launched here, I think now six years ago, five or six years ago. I joined the agency about um, uh, 18 months ago uh, to become its chief executive officer. We provide support coordination, plan management, and a variety of other bits and pieces, including home share. Uh, Some of it's funded by the ACT government, but most of it, 90%, is funded through the NDIS. I'll just jump in straight away, Doogie, and and one of the things we're going to be talking a bit about with you is your career, a really interesting career. A lot of it is activist. And a lot of it is yeah, yeah. A, as a policymaker working in government, but you seem to um, studiously avoid being a service provider for an extensive career. And now you find yourself in a, as a CEO of a service provider. How did, how did that happen and how does it feel? Um, they asked me if I'd like to take the job on and I said yes. <laughs> um, but I'm, I'm only halfway into service providing because we, we do support coordination and plan management. Yep, We're yep. an intermediary organization, um, a member of Disability Intermediaries Australia, the new national peak body for intermediary organizations. Um, but I also remember a politician's chief executive officer, chief of staff, once said to me when I was previously asked if I would join an organization, a government organization, and I said, no, oh, no, it's not really my thing. Um, we don't, I don't really do service provision. That's for other people. And he said, yeah, well, that's the easy answer, Dougie, because all the hard stuff is in service provision. So why don't you come in and do a real job? He was joking, of course, but, you know, my 18 months here have certainly proved 
it isn't any easier in the service providing sector than it was in the advocacy sector because you've got to come up with some of the answers as well as some of the questions. I wanted to ask you a question about advocacy too. I'm going to let Evie jump in in a moment, but from what I can see of your career, you, it's it's pretty evenly balanced. You've done a, a stack of significant advocacy work across Australia and even back to, to Scotland, but you've done a stack of government policy development work. So you've seen both sides of the fence. Could you give us some tips about what works for advocacy? What really, you know, coming forward when you're sitting in government, where are advocates most effective and how can they get the change that they want achieved? Well, <laughs> I wish I knew the answer to that question. All I, all I, all I know is um, um, my advocacy begins with my own experience. It always has done. Um, and um, that was true before I became a person with a disability. Uh, and it's um, it certainly has become true since I had my accident 36 years ago. Um, and um, so I broke my neck in three places on a beach in Scotland, um, not swimming, um, but almost drowning to misquote the poem. Um, and um, I spent 10 months in hospital and, and that was a joy. Um, but even there, I encountered power systems that wanted to tell me how to behave. Um, and before I went in a hospital, I, um, I wasn't told by anyone how to behave, not since my mother let me go to university. And um, so I began advocating for myself inside the hospital, um, joined with others to advocate for hospital regimes to be changed. Um, and just kept on advocating for people with disability because I was. Um, and my fun, you know, kind of fundamental principle is not an original idea by me, of course, is, is that um, you use whatever tactics you can to get the best result for the people on whose behalf you are um, uh, advocating. Um, uh, do everything you can um, to produce change and be unambiguously on the side of the people that you're advocating for. But always remember the people against whom you are advocating or to whom you're taking your advocacy are human beings working in a human being system and that they're flawed like all the rest of us. So I prefer not to kick people's heads, um, but to try and persuade them that we're right and they might want to change and listen to us. And I've been doing that forever. You were an activist before you had the accident. As you said, you were a student activist across a, yeah, a, yeah. a, a range of issues. You have an accident and then uh, in your own words, more or less, you're saying that your activism doesn't stop. The, the subject matter changes and the ch subject yeah. matter changes to disability. And I, 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 I always struggle with this and I want you to help me with it in the sense of you're a person with a physical disability and you're doing advocacy for a highly disparate different field, which includes people with intellectual disability, people with um, mental health issues. Tell me why, as a person with a physical disability, and I know there's some really good answers to this and I'd like to hear them, it's, it's a, you have the imprimatur to, to speak on behalf of that group. I try not to speak on behalf of anybody. Um, I really okay. do. Um, I, although sometimes I forget, um, but that's just because I'm enthusiastic to speak. 
Um, but and it, it's, I think in the world of disability, it's a real problem. I mean, I think anyone who spends a nanosecond looking at the sector can see that there has always been and there remains still hierarchy. Um, and people like me, you know, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant males in a wheelchair, we're supposed to be the cutting edge and leadership of the movement. And in some places at some time, at some times, men of my type have made fantastic contributions to the movement. Um, but sometimes we've also liked to talk to ourselves about, you know, we need wheelchair accessible buses and we need steps to be out of the way and all the rest of it. And, and that, of course, is important, but I think we need to do everything we can to build a diverse, genuine movement that brings people together, respects one another, and listens to what one another has to say. And that for some people, um, the saying of what is important to them um, can take time, maybe carried out in ways that um, uh, use different language, different ways of communicating, um, and have different pressures placed upon them and and we just need to build something that is fully inclusive of everybody and and we haven't got that still haven't got that right in in our disability movement um but that doesn't make it a bad place to be um uh you know uh, but it's a challenge at times shut up doogie and listen to other people is what i think um because <laughs> um, people have got tons of things to say my experience of of being an advocate, being involved with people with disability is, I have never met someone who didn't want just to be normal. Um, and the, the irony is, it's not an irony, the injustice, injustice is that, that people with disability have to fight to be treated just exactly the same as everybody else. I've never met a person with disability that wants to be king or queen of England. They just want to get up, go to work, pay taxes, go home and have fun at the weekend. And, and yet for some reason, we're not allowed to. I think that gets back to my slightly awkward question about um, how does a person with a physical disability advocate on behalf of a larger group of people? And I think you're bringing it back to that sense of otherness is, is, is spot on, Doogie. Yeah, I think you're spot but, on. Yeah, I want to ask another personal question, Doogie. So, yeah. Years ago, I worked with parents of kids with disability, and I, I was um, so amazed by their ability to, to adjust to sometimes extreme adversity. Sometimes um, those parents wouldn't sleep um, for 20 or 30 years, and they still had a sense of humor. They still got on with life. I, I want to ask you about um, pre and post accident, if that's a reasonable thing to do, and feel free to say yeah. it's not. Is it true that you can be just as happy? You described yourself as um, a C something para? C6 quadriplegic, yeah. Is it possible just as happy as a C6 quadriplegic as a person without um, that a, a disability? Yes. Yep. Completely possible. Um, and, um, you know, I'm a Scottish Presbyterian. We're never happy with anything. <laughs> but, um, I think people's happiness derives, or non-happiness derives from their social condition, um, their economic well-being, and our ability to form human relationships. Yeah. And those are all the things that are constrained by um, poor policies towards people with disability and bad attitudes. And um, um, I, 
I am, I, I broke my neck in three places. I almost died. I spent 10 months in hospital and I had to completely reconfigure my life. Um, not because of anything to do with me, but primarily, or not because of some things to do with me, but primarily because of other people's attitudes towards me, which changed. Um, and, and I think, well, you know, when people didn't offer me jobs, when I couldn't get a taxi, because there weren't any wheelchair accessible taxis, there weren't any wheelchair accessible buses, um, I almost, um, I was asked three times whilst in the hospital to go and live in a group home with people I'd never met before in my life. And I, to this day, never understood why I was asked to do that. Um, uh, but um, the, the, um, the barriers I've encountered, in my mind, are nothing to do with Doogie Heard. Because I was Doogie Heard the day before I had my accident, and I was Doogie Heard the day after my accident. And here I am 36 years later, and I'm still Doogie Heard. And I think that's how people with disability usually feel inside that they are the person that they are, and that um, the thing that creates um, what we now call psychosocial disability or stress or anxiety in people who've got a disabling condition of some sort is the way other people treat us badly. I like to say this, but uh, it does prove a point. I was supremely happy as a C6 quadriplegic when I was sitting in the Maracanã football stadium at the final of the 2016 World Cup watching Germany play whoever they beat, Argentina in that cup. And I've always, as a Scottish boy, wanted to go to the World Cup. And, but the point is, it didn't matter to me that I was a C6 quadriplegic. I was just a wee boy, 60 something years old, sitting in a football ground, it happened to be in Brazil, watching a football match. And, um, and I, I wish that, joy could be had by everyone with a disability because nobody cared about my disability. You're taking us very much into NDIS land and about um, economic security and the sorts of things the NDIS provides. And, you, and you've got a really interesting career. You've worked as a you know, ministerial level advice. You've worked with advocacy organisations. You've worked in departments. But I met you in, in 2012 when you were at the pointy end of the creation of the National Disability Insurance Scheme. And there was so much going on. Canberra, Canberra was crazy, as you well remember, um, with Faxia as it was in those days, trying to get this new scheme up. And people were running around like headless chooks because it was happening a year earlier than anybody yeah. expected. Did, did it go too fast? Did we stuff it up in that first year? Um, I, that, that is a very complicated and difficult question to answer, um, but perhaps not for the reasons that, that, that you might intend. Because um, I think operationally, um, it's happened, if you look at how the NDIS has developed, $22 billion um, project with half a million people and their families to benefit from it. Um, if you look around for a comparable reform inside the government, I think it's very, very difficult to find anything that big that happened that quickly. And so it's no surprise that what some people euphemistically refer to as teething problems still exist because we're only in year six. 
Um, sometimes those teasing problems are considerably larger than that. But, but here's, I think, the political um, conundrum that we're in. I think if the development phase had taken any longer, I think there's a real risk that we might not have got the National Disability Insurance Scheme off the ground. And I mean no disrespect to any of the politicians who voted for it, some of whom did remarkable work. You know, um, the Prime Minister at the time, um, Mr. Gulland, um, Gillard, sorry, Gulland? Um, 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 you know, the Minister, um, even the opposition, to be fair, if one must, to the former Tony Abbott. Um, but um, they did terrific work, but I think if, there had been much longer debate about whether or not it was a good idea. I think business as usual might have kicked in and we might not have got the scheme up and running. Well, let's go somewhere else because you were doing a lot of work and have done a lot of work around communications. And I, I, I think it's fair to say the NDIA is a case study in how not to communicate. And now you're outside of the agency. Can you make some comment on why they've got so much so wrong so frequently? <laughs> um, so I, I have to put my hand up and say um, I must bear some responsibility for that because for nearly two years I was the branch manager of the communications and engagement section of the agency. <laughs> um, uh, so, you know, <clears throat> when people look at the website, they're looking at one that my team initially designed in six weeks um, because yeah. you remember how fast it was all moving. Um, you know, when... when, when um, a whole lot of stuff that, that um, I would take a personal responsibility for. Um, but uh, I think some of the difficulties of a, just remember the NDIS is a $22 billion startup. Um, it's bigger than most startups most of us can think about. Um, it was always going to be a challenging um, uh, uh, project to launch and get going. Um, and therefore, there would be um, things that needed improving as we went along. So that's that's fine. Um, I think the problems that we're now facing in, because another thing I should say is I'm on record um, as saying since I uh, since I you know there was a parliamentary inquiry here about a year ago in the ACT into the um, relationship between the agency and the departments in the in the territory between the agency the ndia and the and the um the territory departments because they're not functioning properly um, and I, I went out of my way to say that i thought that the task my former colleagues were doing in the agency was heroic um in trying to get this scheme up and running but the problem that, that one of the fundamental problems um that no startup should have to deal with is, was the government's decision to impose a cap on the staff of the agency because it has distorted everything that then flowed from that. And we're yeah. only now beginning to see a bit of a realization in government's part that that cap skewed everything so much, created unintended consequences that we're now having to roll back from. Um, and so the what's the recent tune review begins to see. You know, it was always the intention of the scheme, always, even during the period I was working for the agency, always the intention that there would, at the heart of the the, the scheme, would be 
an NDIA planner sitting down with an NDIA participant, having a, what we called was a conversation that would lead to a plan that would be funded and then implemented. And here am I, six years later, only been in the scheme myself for about four months at the very most. Um, I have no idea who made the decision about my plan. Um, I didn't write the first person letter that says, this is my plan, I own it, these are the things that I want to do. And I didn't take the decision, never met the person who took the decision about my plan. And that's just fundamentally wrong in terms of the legislation. Um, how can you have choice and control over a process if you've never met the person who makes mm. the decisions about how you're going to live your life? Mm. Dougie, well, you mentioned the, the tune review and the, and the planning inquiry that's going on, or that's, that's happened. Yeah. 2020 is already shaping up to be a huge year in terms of policy reform for NDIS. Um, I'm wondering what are you seeing as being the biggest changes on the horizon that providers should be, providers in particular, should be looking out for? Well, I think providers should look out for what they were always meant to look out for, which and myself included as a provider is the fundamental point about the NDIS. I, it's become so cliched in our thinking now, is that the people with disability at the heart of it should exercise choice and control over the reasonable and necessary supports that they receive through funding. And that all providers should absolutely place people with disability participants at the heart of decision-making. And that has to begin going back to the agency. The agency has to get back or get maybe for the first time really to putting people with disability at the center of decision making. But um, will they? Do you see that that's being indicated in any of the inquiries that are occurring right now? Um, well, I said earlier that I can be a happy person. I also sometimes slip into being slightly cynical and forgive me if this sounds like the more cynical doogie coming out. Um, Amongst the many criticisms I would have about the whole environment around the National Disability Insurance Scheme is that for a scheme that is only entering its sixth year, it has been reviewed, researched, discussed, um, considered by commissions and parliamentary inquiries more than any six-year-old organisational child ever should have been. And the really, really concerning thing is that I think many of the recommendations of the second Productivity Commission report, the ACT Legislative Assembly Committee report, the uh, other reports that have been done have been paid lip service to by the government of the day, or I'm afraid the agency, if they find them inconvenient. And I've got a real concern that, um, uh, the agency finds it difficult in the current environment to just accept what is recommended should be done as the best way to proceed. And 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 the reason I, I think I can I can legitimately express that concern is because there is at least one administrative appeal tribunal decision on transport for people with disability 
who need access to work that the agency has just ignored. Totally ignored. Um, yeah. And, and in fact, worse than ignored, what you're referring to, Kate, there is the AAT versus McGarrigal and the, the way that that played out, just for those of you who may not have memorised AAT history like we have, is that uh, there was a young man who was awarded in at least 10000 I think it was around $16,000 of transport funding. Don't quote me on that figure. Either way, it was a lot more than what most people get to travel to and from work. The AAT originally said that only part of the cost had to be paid, and so he lost to the AAT. It was escalated to the federal court where he won. And so, you know, that, that now obviously overrules the AAT decision, but not only have the NDIA not followed the federal court's ruling, which said that any reasonable and necessary support should be fully funded, on the website, they quote the original AAT decision saying that they will only partially fund some reasonable and necessary support. So if that's not, I mean, cheeky is a really understated way of putting it. I don't know what is. Well, it's more than that. And, and forgive me if I sound like a smart arse, uh, which I do sometimes. Um, I was arrested by the police. It was in an anti-apartheid demonstration when me and some friends ran on to the pitch of a, a rugby game in um, Scotland, trying to prevent the game from going ahead because at that stage, Nelson Mandela was still in jail. And, and I was arrested, spent a night in jail and appeared in court the next day and was fined 50 pounds, which was a lot of money when you were a student in those days. Um, for breaking the law. It would have been inconceivable that I could have said to the judge, oh, thank you very much, judge, but I'm just going to ignore you. I'm not going to pay the 50 pounds and I'm just going to go home and get on with my life. And that's, you know, I was brought up to believe that you, did, you didn't break the law and you did what the judges told you. And it's disappointing, to say the least, that the agency doesn't seem to have to do that. And if I'm wrong, I apologise to the agency, except I think I'm not wrong. Yeah, it's an interesting way to put it. I want to go back to the Troon Review for a second, uh, and mm -hmm. I want to ask about one specific point that was raised in the Troon Review. You and I both sit on the Board of Disability Intermediaries Australia, DIA, which is the peak body for support coordinators and plan managers, but particularly for independent support coordinators and plan managers. But Doogie, the question I want to ask you is that the Troon Review raised the point that the support coordinators should not be working for organizations that also provide other supports to the same individual. And it made a recommendation that that should be reviewed. Now, I'm wondering what you have to say about that as somebody who runs an organization that is an independent support coordinator and obviously has a lot of um, interest in the sector more broadly. So a conflict of interest issue. Yes. Um, well, we're, we're uh, Community Connections for whom I work is is absolutely clear um, that there should be a formal separation between um, work like support coordination and plan management and direct support provision and that um, uh, sometimes perhaps most times the potential conflict of interest can be so great that it creates difficulties both for the support coordinator and uh, for the participant if if um, if people find themselves recommending their own um, support staff. Um, and, and I think I say with some kind of practical experience here um, that Community Connections took that seriously enough that when they um, 
when the NDIS was established, um, it was doing what some of what it was doing, this is long before I arrived here, um, it, it was doing kind of traditional support work for some people as well as case management or whatever it was called. Um, and um, in the early years of the, of the scheme, Community Connections created an entirely separate company um, with its own board, its own membership, its own staff. Uh, and, and they go off and, you know, they do the support work um, and Community Connections does its um, support coordination and plan management work. Um, and um, that separation needs to be um, absolutely clear for everybody to see. Um, so um, it is I, going to be a controversial <laughs> change, though, isn't it? Like it, it's certainly going to be uh, it's going to meet a lot of resistance from a large part of the sector. And some of those some of that resistance will be really valid. Like when we look at people in really thin markets, um, remote, yeah. remote areas, people who find it particularly hard to find providers to work with them. You know, we're going to definitely see some resistance there. So it'll be interesting as we see the NDIA's response to the tune review, how they if they indicate how they'll approach that. They actually implemented it back, you remember Doogie, back in 2015, 2016 sometime, it was you could not be a support coordinator and a service provider and back down on it within a week or two because they realised how much problem they were going to have. Yeah, and and although, so I I probably want my cake and, and eat it here because um, uh, I think separation is, is critically important, but I, I the points you're making about you know thin markets and yeah. uh, uh, particularly but in other circumstances uh, I think the practicalities of, of living um, particularly outside the big Australian cities but not just big Australian cities um, so for instance here in Canberra you know capital of the country 500,000 people um, we're trying to find um, uh, behavior support practitioners um, uh, for some of the people we do support coordination. Um, we're flying people in from Queensland to do this work because if you phone a Canberra organization with skill and um, uh, practitioners who um, meet the NDIS commission um, new arrangement, um, they tell us um, we can't even see the person that you're coordinator for for at least three months and one or two people of organizations have said come back and see us in a year um and you think well, that's, ha that's happening in canberra what's it like in broken hill or bendigo or um or anywhere in western australia that isn't perth and um and so where those kind of thin market questions um pose real practical irreconcilable problems that the key has to be um, that the transparency about the relationships is crystal clear and upfront so that people can make whatever quasi compromised decision um, that they need to meet uh, need to make uh, but in the only through that kind of caveat um, I think uh, that of transparency and openness can people have any chance of maintaining choice and control? I don't think anybody has ever really grasped, including the original Productivity Commission, work on it, the complexity of disability, have they, Doogie? The, 
that there's no simple answers in this stuff. It looked like a market-based scheme, although a lot of people were skeptical before the market-based scheme would work, but it misses the point in, in so many different ways, um, using a market to create opportunities for people with disabilities. And then pure policy that looks so clear, you know, there's a conflict of interest in being a support coordinator and a service provider. Let's stop that. The really negative outcomes that can result in lots of areas by doing that. It's just, and you've been in policy long enough to know, it, it's freaking hard to get those nuances right. So, yep. Yep. And um, the longer we don't, longer we take to get them right, the, the greater the risk is that um, bad practice, if that's what it is, will be will be enshrined in the kind of DNA of the organization forever. And, and the more we rush them, the more we'll stuff it up. You know, we, it, it'll be so difficult to get back to the founding intentions of the scheme. Which is and, one of the questions um, I wanted to ask you, Doogie. So going back to 2012, when um, it, yep. was, it was all, we, we, we weren't even sure it would happen. And now it is. Are we getting there? Oh yes, we're definitely getting there. I mean, that's part of the contradiction of all of this, um, which is that, I mean, I do accept that for many people, um, um, there have been improvements, genuine improvements in their in their lives as a consequence of the scheme, um, uh, and but for for a substantial number of people, and um, it still remains a really problematic environment in which to try to live one's life um, and I you know I and we mentioned we talked earlier about you know or I talked earlier about you know white guys with beards in wheelchairs um, generally we have the easiest path through the NDIS um, and the people that we support in in um, in, um, in commun through community connections it's pretty clear that people with a psychosocial disability, with an intellectual disability, or with, um, uh, somewhere on the um, autism spectrum, um, then those people struggle with the NDIS much more than people like me do. And I think that's a reason why the NDIS's current default approach to support coordination and other intermediaries is the wrong one um, because the thing that also is forgotten about the NDIS is we've got used to the idea about talking about people inside the inside the NDIS as being um, you know more or less complex and seem to have that the system seems to have forgotten that unless you qualify to meet the old ABS terminology of severe and profound disability unless you're among the, the most complex um, diagnostically um, group of people with disability in the country, you can't even get into the NDIS. So everybody who comes our way lives complex, fraught lives, almost all of them on disability support pension, um, who need support just to navigate the system. And um, we haven't got that balance right yet between the participant, their allies and supporters, and the whole big system. And I, I do, we don't want to create another big bureaucratic system. And sometimes that's what it looks 
even more like we're heading to. So Dickie, I just want to explore something again, um, personal, yeah. but, but you're saying that um, people like yourselves are articulate, um, people are, are doing much better under the scheme. I, I saw you in 2012 in a senior role working on design of the scheme. You've been senior around the scheme now for seven years and you got your plan four months ago. What's what's the story yeah. there? <laughs> um, they, they say, I mean, I, the truth is I'm not very good with paperwork. <laughs> <laughs> but here's here's another thing, you know, this is um this is gonna sound really wanky, to be honest, so forgive me. Um I I I mean you really I really with this. Yeah, no, um I it's it's like why so I'm, I'm trying to explain it this way. I, I, I got my plan or, or two things. It took eight months for the agency to approve my plan, which is shockingly bad operational behavior, completely unacceptable. Um, and, and I let that eight months run because I just wanted to see how long it would take. And, but you have to be, I think, a chief executive officer of an organization getting paid a decent enough salary to not have to worry about the financial consequences of waiting eight months. And you had to be bloody-minded as well. Yeah, I, I didn't think it would take them eight months. I thought, you know, four or five, and I can still make a smart-arse political point. Um, but eight months um, was certainly a joy to my political advocacy years. Sure. Um, but um, the plan, when it came back, really isn't that good. Um, and I know it's not that good because I read the NDIS quarterly reports and I see that on average, people with a spinal cord injury get a higher average package than anyone else, any other diagnostic group in the scheme. And mine is not certainly above average. And some people say, well, why don't you go and appeal and review and all the rest of it? And, and I might have done if it was somebody else. But part of my job is to help prepare people to review and do all those things they want to do. And I just kind of thought, well, you know, they need it more than I do. So, I, you know, I'm, I'm doing all right. I'm comfortable. I can get by. Um, and, and so it just wasn't a priority. And here's another thing that I have to say, um, because it's true, but also because I think it's a reality of... Um, of um, the lives that people with support needs are forced to live. Um, uh, the, the support I get from the National Disability Insurance Scheme is amongst, it's close to being the first ever funded support I've ever got from a government organization um, uh, for my personal care and other matters. And that's because, to be perfectly frank, I would like to live my life without people coming through the door at six o'clock in the morning, seeing me naked, helping me shower, evacuate my bowel, and get me ready for work. Um, because my brain tells me, you just want to be yourself, Doogie. You just want to be on your own. You want to live a private life and make choices. But when you've got a disability, that what I regard as a luxury, is no longer available to you. 
So I've just delayed it as much as possible. But I'm getting old. If I hadn't joined the scheme now, I'd have been too old to join the scheme. So I'm in it. Get my new wheelchair in a few weeks, I believe. It's fantastic. NDIS is a wonderful thing and it's completely problem free. <laughs> or not. <laughs> Probably a perfect note to end on. Yeah, Dougie, thank you so much for speaking to us today. What we're trying to do with, with our conference in June, which you'll be speaking at, is to, to try to be really future focused, to not be dwelling in the problems, but at the same time to be quite realistic about the context we're working in. And I think um, this conversation has been perfectly striking that balance. You're, you're, you're such an entertaining speaker. And, um, oh, that's a good one, Dougie. No, I think we've only just looked at the clock. Oh, so. yeah. <laughs> thank you very much, Dougie. Thank you very much. Bye-bye, Bye-bye. everyone. See ya. You've been listening to Disability Done Different, Candid Conversations, a podcast by DSC. If you want to learn a little bit more about us, you can head to our website, disabilityservicesconsulting.com.au, or if you want to sign up for that conference, the website is just gyst2020.com.au. If you've liked this podcast, please subscribe and tell your friends. And just before you go... If you have an extra five or so minutes to spare, we decided to keep in an additional conversation we had with Doogie that we thought deserved some airtime. So this is Doogie on Mary Shelley and the Apocalypse. Stick around. I think you'll enjoy it. So um, most people know Mary Shelley's uh, most famous book is, is Frankenstein. So uh, tell us about your, your thesis in that space and connect Mary Shelley to the discussion we're having, if you can. <laughs> well... I graduated um, from the ANU about a year ago with an honours degree in English literature and Mary Shelley was absolutely central to my thesis which was about post-apocalyptic fiction. Mary Shelley is really important for other reasons, particularly in the context of writing about and reading disability narratives because she's the 18-year-old writer who gave us Frankenstein's monster, the nameless creature created by Baron Frankenstein. I think many of us, by which I mean people with disability and our allies, don't see Baron Frankenstein's creation as, ooh, scary, the monster. I think we see him as different, certainly, and the other for sure. And he's regarded as a less than perfect form of the idealised notion of the perfect human being. A bit like myself, I suppose. I just don't believe that any of us is perfect and there's no such thing as normal. So I guess that puts me on the outside, on the same side as the monster. Imperfect in body, soul and mind. But you know, if the alternative is being Baron Frankenstein, then to be honest, I'm quite happy to be on the outside, to be one of the others, to be out there advocating with the rest of the world's imperfect creatures. I just want to come back to the theme of Apocalypse Doogie because I'm, I'm so curious where, as you said, we're experiencing a time with these extreme climate change related events. We're potentially on the brink of a global pandemic. I'm certainly one of these people that gets really swept up in the uh, the panic of a lot of these events. You've really and really been quite anxious about it. Yeah I'm, yeah, I'm prone to that kind of panic. But I'm just curious, Doogie, as someone who spent as much time thinking about apocalypse as you have, how does all of that impact your experience of the current events? Um, I am an eternal optimist. And I believe, not an eternal optimist, actually, that's not true. Because science tells us that eventually everything comes to an end. 
um, include one one's own life, um, uh, uh, the the world in which we live. Physics tells us it won't be here in like eight billion years time. But I'll have been long gone by then. Um, I think what um, the time we're living in um, for me is a time for activism. It's a time for people to come together and recognise what binds them rather than what separates them, whether that be race or class or disability or gender or sexuality or whatever it might be. Uh, and that um, ordinary everyday people have a, both a right and a duty to come together and say to the people who are in power, we will not live our lives in these conditions. Um, and I mentioned earlier about you know working near um, the Monash air quality station, which registered an uh, uh, air quality level of, or poor quality level of 5,000, which was 27 times the hazardous level. And I came into work last week when the, the new Canberra fire was burning, and the air quality level for some reason was only down about 400, which is twice the hazardous level. And I found myself saying to myself, well, at least it's not as bad as it used to be. And then I thought, wait a minute, it's twice the hazardous level. And, and it's funny, ironic, but kind of, it's a cautionary tale in my mind that our capacity to get, get used to, how, to things being bad is, is quite impressive as human beings. And um, we tolerate and we work together to get through adversity. But striving against adversity, I don't believe, is the natural human condition. I think we should work with one another to make things better. Uh, and in the disability world, that means recognizing who we are and what we, where we come from and what our experience is and, and respecting the differences that we've all had and saying, okay, let's fix a problem. And some of them will fix and others we won't. But I remain eternally optimistic about our ability to make change. Um, you know that thing that Barack Obama was always famous for saying that the arc of human history tends towards social justice? I believe that, except sometimes it, it takes longer to get there than I want. Um, and that just says to me, we've got to be, oh, here comes the 1970, I wanted to be a happy um, young man. Um, um, <laughs> I think we've just got to seek love and peace and work together and, and make the world a better place.